OTB's Mount Rushmore. 32 counties, one county representative choosing their sporting Mount Rushmore. Some decisions are easy. And I was seeing teachers who had never expressed any emotion whatsoever lose their mind when Sonny was running in that home straight trying to yeah. catch that yeah. gold spot. Others are controversial. Mayo's greatest celebrity fan now helps him earn his place on Mayo's Mount Rushmore is Kevin Kilbane. Join the debate across all our social channels at Off The Ball. George O'Connor, 17 summers uh, in purple and gold. And catch the live decision-making over the next few months on OTB AM, live every weekday at 7.30 AM on OTB Sports Radio. The OTB Podcast Network. You're very welcome back. It is Thursday's Off the Ball. It's Nathan with you until 10 o'clock. The football show coming up from 9. We'll talk to three Irish players about their current situation. Alan Judge, Daryl Horgan and Porter Gammond will join us on the football show from 9. If you missed John Giles picking that rather sensational international 11 of players he's played against, that is up on offtheball.com and you can check it out on the OTB podcast network as well. But right now we are going to turn our attention to boxing. I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Paul Dempsey who is everyone will know as a presenter and commentator with BT Sport. Evening, Paul. Hi. No, we can hear me. Oh, we can't. We can hear you there and we can see you. And we've got Andy Lee as well with the most beautiful background up there, looking like a man who's very happy and somehow managing to enjoy life through this. He's always got a smile on his face. I don't know, just uh, feel a bit invaded by my background here. You know, it's not a nondescript bookshelf, it's, a, it's my back garden. <laughs> uh, Paul, it's, it's great to have you on the show. What we're going to do uh, over the next sort of half an hour or so is look back on some fights over what is now, Paul, we should point out, a five-decade career from the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and the 2020s, though. You would look at you now and go, how can that man have covered fights in five different decades? Well, we're cheating a bit. I mean, it is quite scary. We're, we're going to cheat a bit. And um, thank you very much for the invite to be on the show. It's great to be with Andy. Andy and I, as you probably know, spent uh, quite a fun week in Las Vegas when the world was different. It feels like forever ago. It was only at the end of February. And a great triumph. He's too modest to say this, so I'm going to say it for him. It was a great triumph for Andy Lee and a great moment in his life. I got a chance to share a little bit of it with him on the night, which I was really, really pleased for him for. Uh, and obviously he knows what I think about him. And I think it could be the start of big things for Andy Lee, not just Tyson Fury, but we'll have to get Andy on that. Well, we, we certainly hope so, and we certainly expect so. He's made, he's, made a, he's made not a bad start to this coaching career, it's got to be said. No, smart guy all round. Always knew that. <laughs> I don't know, I think it's a good, good horse is easy to train, isn't it? Something's the same. <laughs> Yeah, you've made it a better horse, I think it's fair to say. Paul, before we get into some of these fights then that you've identified that really do stand out throughout your career, like you are pretty much an Irishman. You live in Ireland. You live down in Wicklow. You went to college here. Uh, probably a lot of people listening in didn't, don't even realise that. How long have you been based in Ireland for? Uh, a long time, actually. Um, mid uh, 2004, really, I think we came back to Ireland, me and my wife, my kids. So since then, really, um, me, the, see, the, the thing with me and Andy Lee is we're London Irish through and through. So uh, uh, that, I think that's one of the reasons that Andy and I actually clicked. We haven't actually ever talked about that, Andy and I, actually. But we're from ver what we would say are very similar backgrounds. That is, you know, our parents living in England. And I think I'm right in saying, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, that like me, my, your parents came back to Ireland when you were a kid, which is pretty much what happened with us as well. And so... Um, 
I, you know, obviously I've had a lot, a lot of connections with Ireland ever since. And um, for the reasons that, like a lot of other people, family and all that came along and we thought it was the right thing to do. But yeah, we, I've lived in Ireland for a long time, actually. You went to college in UCD and Wikipedia never lies, but it says you played League of Ireland football for UCD. It's too long ago to remember that, Nathan. Come on, give us a little you bit were, of something. I don't because think you were even born then, were you? Uh, just, no, just, just about. Just about, just about. But it, the 1982-83 League of Ireland season, a uh, quick look for UCD would tell you, Peter Lorimer played for... No, that is true. Peter and I played together. That is true, wow. yeah. And uh, Sadly, I hear that uh, like Leeds United, as you know, have been hit very hard mm. the last six weeks or so. And sadly, uh, you know, I, I, I was speaking to somebody I know well, John Helm, actually, the commentator, who's got... Who's, very friendly with Johnny Giles and all those boys. And I hear that Peter's not particularly well at the moment as well. I, he's probably not listening, but it'd be lovely to reach out to him somehow and pass on that message, maybe through Johnny. Yeah, uh, it's obviously been an incredibly tough time for all that Leeds United family over the past few weeks and throughout this uh, outbreak of the virus. You were obviously yeah. then, you were obviously a very tidy footballer. No, no, rubbish, rubbish. Ah, come on, you're not playing on a League of Ireland team with Peter Larimer. Well, uh, um, Jim Beglin, who you also know, mm. who I commentate with, Jim actually surprised me about six, eight weeks ago because he brought in a match program from from the early 80s. And uh, it was Shamrock Rovers against UCD, actually. So, And Jim's got all kinds of memorabilia. And I just said, what are you doing bringing that to me? I mean, you were a guy who played at the top of the game, 50-odd Ireland caps, played in all the big games, not necessarily all in Europe at the time because of the Liverpool ban. I mean, you're pretty sad that you're digging down that deep to get a hold of something like that. But what he doesn't remember, actually, is it wasn't the game in question, but what he does not remember is, the and I keep telling him this, the very first time I ever spoke to Jim was at halftime in another game between Shamrock Rovers and UCD. And I, I think it was a League Cup tie. I, I, I'm not even certain that the League Cup continues in that way in Ireland now. But then it did, and we were four 0 down at half time. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I, I, I see from the league table it was a struggle. That was that was John Giles was managing that Shamrock Rovers team. Well, yeah, and you, and, you know I knew Johnny from that time actually, mm. and uh, John also helped UCD at that time as well because John had just come back from Vancouver Whitecaps, yeah, and he put UCD actually into some uh, players who played for us. Um, and against Shamrock Rovers, actually. Uh, Davy Norman was one who was the captain of Canada at that time, and quite a few others. So that would have been, was it the great Tony O'Neill that was your manager yes, at that stage? Tony, of course. I mean, it was Tony's club in yeah. every single way. You know, he built it from nothing. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Well, it was a, certainly a part of your career I, I hadn't realised until, thankfully, it's I was still too long ago, and I was absolute rubbish, and every time it's brought up, I just have to explain that to everybody. <laughs> still, it's there, it's there. Uh, so, when, when, when did the uh, the broadcasting dream start? Or was it a dream? Was it something well, you always wanted to get into? Well, it was a footballer, obviously. And um, uh, I, I don't know how it really ever began. I mean, I, was, I, I just didn't... I think it probably, for me, it was one of those things where I just I couldn't see myself doing those sort of office job type things. It was out of reach for nearly everybody, of course, at that time. But I was very lucky in that I, I did get a like a traineeship offer from the BBC. Um, and I, I actually worked in in, um, in Belfast for a summer before that on a, on a kind of summer job thing. So that really whetted my appetite. Obviously, that was a huge, huge, uh, I wouldn't say adventure, but an eye opener at that time working in Belfast. So those are the two first steps that I took. And then I spent two years working in London at the BBC. I'll keep this very brief because it's boring. Uh, 
got amazing grounding there, worked with some amazing people who taught me so much. And then I, I just felt like I, I really was very interested in, in working abroad. So, I, I, I mean, I, I worked a little bit in France and in, I worked in, on the radio in Switzerland, actually, for two two years or so. And that was an amazing grounding in terms of European football because I literally used to spend the because the rail system was so good there. I truly used to go one week to watch a big game in the Bundesliga, the next week to go to northern, you know, somewhere in northern Italy or to Rome to watch a game in Syria. And they were the top, obviously, the top two leagues in Europe at that time. So that was fantastic from that point of view. The first fight you've picked out, Paul, from the 80s, it's very much late 80s, we should point out, was yeah. the Mike Tyson Frank Bruno fight, which was. Yeah very much at the start of Sky Sports and Sky, it's what, still three years before the Premier League comes in and Sky really Absolutely. comes to the fore. Yeah, so we t we did talk about this, Nathan, didn't we? And so it's, it is a little bit tailored for Andy to, to pick it. He's going to done with this. But to start it off, if we're going to do this one fight per decade, I'm going to actually speak against myself in the first case and say that the fight, obviously, of the 19... And we argue about this all the time, Nathan, with the guys that I work with and everybody involved in boxing. Um, the, there is only one contender for the fight of the 1980s. The only problem is it's been done to death this week on other shows, on other radio channels in Britain by people I work with. <laughs> but I have to say to everybody, the fight of the 1980s, in fact, perhaps the greatest fight that's ever taken place in the history of boxing and broadcasting was in 1981 between Sugar Ray Leonard and Tommy Hearns for the World Welterweight title. To Andy, do you, di do you diverge from me on that? No, I, I thought you were going to say Hagler Hearns. But no, in terms of yeah. boxing skill so and artistry, Sugar Ray Leonard versus um, Tommy Hearns is by far the highest level of what you would see boxing and probably, yeah, the best fight in terms of a contest of the 1980s. See, Nathan, I told you this would lead to it. You're going to need hours for this. But <laughs> if I, I, so but many time. professionals do what Andy has just done. But there is a reason why I mention it, OK? And it is because it was very, very important moment in the history of the industry of boxing and broadcasting. Because that was the first time, really, that the promoters dreamt big and tried to work without the, the so-called terrestrial or national broadcast mm. system in America and by extension abroad. And the thing about it was they persuaded the fighters to understand for the first time. And I knew Mike Trainer, who was Ray Leonard's attorney and manager, a really high class professional guy. They really grasped that these guys could earn maybe five or six times more money by turning their back on the so-called traditional broadcast industry. And that's really why it's, it's, to me, so important, as well as the obvious genius of the two fighters and my personal favorite, Tommy Hearns, that, that they took the industry forward on that night in a way where it was all risk. And Aram and others, Bob Aram and others, were carrying it all on their shoulders and they got away with it and they made money and they changed the industry because of that. And the other reason for mentioning it is because one of the most asked questions that I've got, and Andy probably gets this as well, why is there so little big time boxing on terrestrial TV or national TV? And the answer to that is twofold. One, because of what happened on that night and the way that the industry financially was taken in a new dimension. And a bit, until that point, there had only ever been closed circuit pay-per-view 
style events in cinemas. So the great heavyweights of the 70s, that's how you watched them if you were not watching on television, largely on delay. But this was into your house via the, the, med the magic medium of cable in the 1980s in America. And that, that changed the model in a massive way. And as, as I think some people will understand, one of the important things about boxing as a TV, as a sport for broadcast, it has always been at the forefront, going back to radio times, same thing happened in television. And so that was the real kicker. And it, it meant that that glorious era, which succeeded the, 80, the heavyweights in the 70s, made around the welterweights, like Andy's favorite, Hagler. We, all, we idolized all of these guys, and they fought in these fights, Duran, Benitez, Leonard, Hagler, all of them, and uh, epic, so many epic fights, and they all made so much more money than had ever been done before. So that's a very long preamble, and I know we're against the clock a little bit. Andy, do you, have you got anything to say? <laughs> Nathan, no, I know it's your show, but Andy... No, no, you fire away. I'll head home, lads. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. That, so that's the back, the background. And to disagree slightly with Andy Lee, that is the greatest fight I've ever seen in my life and will always be. But the problem with it is that other people got there first. So to, now to answer your question properly, Nathan. Yeah. So in 1989, obviously that was edge of the seat stuff, like we're all trying to pioneer at this moment, like you guys are trying to do. Sky had literally been on the air for two to three weeks. It was a building site in West London. There were literally maybe 100 employees of Sky at that time. I was around about the 50th person ever employed by Sky. It was my first TV job. And it was their first grab at trying to get hold of some, some TV rights that would say to the British public, we mean business and, and we're going to change the game. And so really the, the first two big events that Sky ever covered were that fight, which they sent me to, and the in England cricket tour of the West Indies the following winter time, I think it was, when both both occasions, it really rocked the establishment. It, they said it couldn't be done and it wouldn't be done. And both times it worked. And we're nearly at the end of this. But to sum up what it was like at Sky in those days, I went to my boss, David Hill, who was the greatest TV sports producer perhaps in the world ever. And I, I said to him, have you got any instructions before I get on this plane to cover my first ever fight for television ever <laughs> and he said yeah don't foul up but he didn't say foul I, that was it i'd imagine not it, it must have been uh that whole period but that's the reason why tyson was important mm. but th that whole period then from going from tyson bruno on to the lennox lewis era and nazim ahmed in, into the 90s like that decade from first starting out with tyson bruno what happened over the next 10 years for you it must have been just such an enjoyable ride well, it was fantastic. Just one tailpiece as well, which Andy will uh, relate to, I think, about why it gave the opportunity to companies like uh, subscription channels, top rank and so on in America, driving it and Sky and the promoters like Frank Warren and Barry Hearn driving it because they all worked for Sky or with Sky in those days, remember. I mean, the reality, I'm making it sound like it's a very glamorous business, but as Andy well knows, it, it, I understand that it's not for everybody totally. And it, there are very severe downsides to professional boxing. And the other real thing that really kicked it forward into this sphere where terrestrial broadcasters have had difficulty with it is because of the kind of thing that can happen. And it, to go back to Leonard Hearns, one year later, an infamous fight night in the same building Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, 
when the outstanding young Ray Mancini fought a Korean kid and the, the, the worst happened in that fight. That was the last time in America in the 1980s that a major fight was shown live on what we call national terrestrial television because of the fatality of the mm. Korean kid. Yeah, we've had and, Ray Mancini in studio over the last oh, couple of years know. talking about that. Okay, so, so that, that's, a ve that's a ver another very important point to mention. You know, that really changed everything. And really and truly, from that time until this, in my personal view, the problem is that the national broadcasters, they dip their toe in the water and then they come out again and they throw money at people like Audley Harrison and which is what BBC did after that Olympic Games. And they don't really know what they're doing and they haven't thought it through and they're not prepared to see the trouble that it brings. And my boss at Sky in the 1990s, Vic uh, Wakeling, who succeeded David Hill, who was a massive boxing fan, who did all these deals with Warren and Hearn and all those guys, I well remember him saying to me, this boxing gives us more trouble than all the other sports put together. But we need it. And, you know, it, it makes money for us and the people love it. Paul, just on that point of, you know, you touched on there about Ray Mancini and the Korean, how boxing, not often, but can be a tragic sport. When you are presenting a boxing show, I don't know, you always bring this sense of occasion and, like, you can feel the danger when you're, when you're leading a pres presentation of a boxing show. Um, so is that always in your mind? Because you know how serious of, a serious a sport it is, because... Absolutely. And unfortunately, you know, I've had without totting them up now and I prefer not to think about it, three or four, maybe five, actually. The worst one was in Glasgow during the Nathan, as Nathan was calling it, the, the golden era you know, on Sky uh, um, in Glasgow in uh, what, 95, I think it was. British title fight, Drew Doherty against Jim Murray. Jim Murray collapsed at the end of that fight and he passed away, I think, a day or two days later. He was in a terrible way coming out the ring. Everybody knew the worst was going to happen. And it was an infamous night for another reason, because the, we're not talking about football here, Nathan, and we've all been in those situations. But for a boxing event, definitely it was the worst crowd riot I was ever in. It was horrendous. And it left a mark on every one of us who was there. I have to tell you, it was in a hotel uh, in Glasgow and the crowd went absolutely nuts. Um, there, were, there was a, a long running criminal saga in Glasgow. Uh, basically, football hooligans in a prearranged situation and uh, something I prefer not to think about. And the, the, the tragedy of that happening around what was happening in the ring at that very moment to Jim Murray, I saw... Uh, as we would say in this time, more generally, you know, you see the best of people and the worst of people in, in, mm. in, in a, a space of a few minutes. And that was very troubling that, that all unfolded. And I'll tell you somebody who really helped me after that was Murray Walker, who was the great uh, Formula One TV commentator. Yeah. I'm, we were talking one night and I said, how did he lost so many of his friends, real close friends in that era in motorsport? So dangerous. And I said to him, how do you cope? How do you get over seeing that happen to you so many times? Because it's, you know, it's ha it does happen in boxing. He said, you don't. And I went from away from that thinking, that's what I needed to hear. That's okay now with me. I understand that now. You don't get over it. But do, it, after, it after occasions like that, Paul, do you ever question your role in, in the sport? 
in terms of presenting it and your willing your will to do it to continue doing it no i um i under it's made me question it for sure andy but you know I, I, as you would know i i believe so strongly in in what the virtues in wider society of boxing are i really do believe in that 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 counteracts it for me and as you would tell all our listeners you guys know the risks far better than i ever would understand them that's true isn't it it's 100 percent true when i was talking to andy yesterday paul he was complimenting your post-fight interviews and i think anyone who's ever done post-match or post-fight particularly post-match interviews to start with would know they're, they're difficult at the best of times talking to losing players straight after they come off off a pitch but post-fight interviews and talking to losing fighters after going through as you're talking about there these most grueling 12 rounds is how much thought and how much time do you put into how you approach them and how you get that balance right of I've been able to push them and asking what happened, what went wrong, and because usually there's so much bravado and hype before a fight, and, and getting the balance with somebody who's literally just put their life on the line for our entertainment for the previous hour. And very well put that, Nathan, actually. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult one. I think what I learned early on, again, dating back to those early shows that we did in America, and Andy, again, you'll know this, having worked over there. I, I think I did learn from the American guys actually, that they had a much more hard-nosed approach about that. And that did rub off on me. Um, it's not my personal relationship with the boxer or the footballer that's important. And in the long run, I, I think you do kind of get a modicum of respect in most cases if you have been seen to ask the question that the people want, uh, who are watching it or listening to it, that they want asked. I think... It's difficult. Some, I got a lot of stick. Ricky Hatton, who's one of the people I've been fondest of of all time in Britain. Uh, Ricky, his last fight against Senchenko in Manchester, we did a, an interview which got a lot of stick from a lot of people at the time. And I was thinking, what's the fuss? Uh, uh, Ricky somebody I know as well as a lot of people in my own family. I, there were some pointed questions in there for sure, but... Uh, it, it, it was I had absolutely no issue doing it. You know, uh, that's all I can say to that. And, and I, I didn't I didn't feel like I'd been a, a unduly intrusive. I don't think you can be unduly intrusive if if you are talking about what has just happened. Mm. You're, you're unduly intrusive if you're saying, you know, what's going on in your private life or something not related to the matter at hand. That's different in my view. Well, you ever, have you ever worried about a fighter lashing out at you in an interview? Because you have been very direct with fighters. People respect you for it and they admire you for it. But do you ever fear for your safety, you know, confronting a fighter in the ring directly after a fight? If I, if I say no, it's bound to happen, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, listen, no. Fighters are nearly, fighters are always pussycats, really. Nearly always. Really? I mean, what's my worth who's going to have a pop at me? What am I worth? You know, come on. I'm, worth, I'm not worth anything like that. Idiots. Idiots around them is more of a problem sometimes. I've had one or two threats from them. I better not name them. <laughs> so why, why do you push so hard? Why, why do you feel like you, like, do you feel like you, people deserve that? Or why do you push so hard in these I respect you for it. I think everybody does within the sport. Again, um, you, do, you, you are a bit battle-hardened after a while, perhaps. 
And to be honest, if a guy's earning 10, 12, 20 million dollars for a night's work, however hard, and trust me, there's nothing harder, they, they have a duty to answer the question, in my view. And the people are paying. And Nathan, that's the same in, the, in football now at the top end of the game. You know, these guys are paid absolute fortunes. It comes with the territory, in my view. Yeah, it's still, it's still not an easy thing to do. And there, again, there's so many vested interests. And I'm sure this huge pressure comes on at times from promoters and from coaches and that you're all buying into selling the same product that, you know, the, the broadcasters in a way need these guys and to be brave in big moments when there's so many people watching, like it, 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 it does take bravery to ask those questions. It's not as straightforward as maybe people watching on the outside think. Yeah, uh, I, 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 all I'll say is, I, I, I think it's slightly different, Andy, with a lot of the boxers because, you know, most of the boxers and the people in the boxing business who do the, the media stuff before the fight, they're pushing their product, okay? And so then then it goes away. And you if, if a fight, even a high high-end fighter chooses he can have he can be right out of the spotlight for, a, for for months and months at a time and i will defend nathan some of the current day top-end football managers because in my time the amount of exposure to the media has gone out of all proportion if you are klopp or guardiola they have to do press 40 normally 40 weeks of the year three or four times and ha i really don't know how they do that I, I so they do have my sympathy and you can we all see it you know they're fed up they don't want to do the interview but again we're paying tv are paying lots of money and in the end they tend to get that i have to say the fight you've chosen from the 90s is tyson holyfield the first yes. one not the bite fight and again again just going back to that that era and the razzmatazz and the show was like i I certainly wasn't then. I've never been a boxing purist. I love the hype. I love that side of it. I love the build-up and the warm-up and the entrance to the ring. When you were, you were probably only, what, 10, 11 watching that. Were you always a purist just waiting for the actual fight to start and Nazim going in on a flying carpet was something you'd no interest in? Uh, well, no, I think you are. They're all showmen, even Andy Lee in his own way, modest as he is. You know, they've got that, that kind of gene in them, haven't they, most of them, that sort of showbiz gene few of the Mexicans, I'll come on to one of them in a minute, um, maybe slightly different in their approach. But a lot of these guys do have that in them. Uh, and that that's part of the part of the, the, sh the sh boxing showbiz with blood, as mm. it's always said, you know, that's what it is. And it, I listen again, I get it. it's not to everybody's taste. I completely understand that. Um, but the Tyson Holyfield thing, as you mentioned, it um, does stand out. The, um, yeah, obviously, some big football nights. You're not meant to be biased, but if there's a club or a you know a country to, national team that you have a, a, an allegiance to in some way, it does colour you a little bit at times. But I think that that one boxing night is probably up there with anything ever, and I don't expect to see much like that again. I mean, the build-up to that first fight, and there's a brilliant ESPN documentary about it, which I'd recommend, Chasing Tyson. The, the build-up was like a five-year build-up for the various reasons with Tyson's problems, Evander's medical problems. And the, the sense at the time was that Tyson, if he's ready, he's going to try and kill Holyfield. And such was the animosity in, in the build-up. That, that, that was on the agenda at that time. And the way Holyfield went about it just was 
mind blowing. I watched it back recently, actually, and I have a different memory of it than watching the fight back, Andy, because I think when you watch the fight back, Evander's in it right from the start. But my memory of watching it on the night, because I was so fearful as to what could happen, vis a potential fatality, was that Evander was getting chased and chased well on top of him. But I actually don't think that when I look back at it now, incidentally. But there was that feeling. And the build-up around the fight, Nathan, was absolutely of a different order in, in the days beforehand and on the night in Las Vegas. And what you had was the heart and soul of black America at that time represented in that fight. Or that's how it seemed to come over to me. On the one side, all the bad people and the, you know, the rap scene was growing quickly in America then. All those kind of hangers on, the, the showbiz fraternity around Tyson and Evander, who in public, to a degree, played the part of the Bible-loving, hmm. decent, quiet human being. And they were two roles that were, they were in, They're much more complex than that in reality. But in the fight itself... There was a moment after what I think is about four or five rounds, and there had been this enormous clamor for Tyson to go out and finish the job early. And then right from the back of the crowd, and I, I honestly now, the, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up when I even think about this, but you started to hear this tiny little roar. It wasn't a roar, a tiny little cry, a plaintive cry. Holy field, holy field. And it was like 10 little grannies on, on a Bible club excursion from Alabama who'd made this trip so that their boy was, was going to have a few friends in it. That was what it was like. And suddenly the whole crowd started to take it up. And you can see what it does to me thinking about it now. And it was absolutely hysteria, hysteria, like I've hardly ever seen. And sure enough, Holyfield, the indomitable warrior of his era, put Tyson away at the end of it. And the the scenes were unbelievable. It, it, it's, it's special to me for another reason, Nathan, because it's it's the last fight that the great Reg Guttridge ever commentated on. And I was beside him with Jim Watt. I adored both of them as people. They're both amazing characters. And um, Reg was on loan to us from ITV on that night. And Jim, obviously, I'd worked with and many, did for many years. And at the very end of it, I said to Reg, Reg, as long as you've been doing it, what was that like? And Rich said to me, if I was you now, son, I'd give up tonight because you're never going to see anything like that in your life again. <laughs> uh, but it sounds but he wasn't wrong. <laughs> and so far, he's been proven right. Andy, I don't know what you, uh, if you've got it up there in that way. Yeah, well, it's, I was a kid, but I remember staying up to watch it. But like you said, with the passing of time, you remember fights differently from... When you watch them now and they're clear like they, like I recently watched rewatched Hagler Hands because it was 35 years later, and everyone talks about the Great War. But when I watch it now, it's like a dominated one sided dominant fight for Hagler. It's just a dominant display, and Absolutely. even it's I think Tyson's reputation went ahead of him, and even on the scoring on the TV, they were scoring it the first first five of the rounds. I think Holyfield only had one, but I'm watching it today and thinking. Actually, Holyfield's right in this fight, and these rounds are going either way. It happens, doesn't it? And, and, and one of the things that is said sometimes is when you do know the result, it subconsciously does alter your state of judgment. I don't know. But as you know, Nathan, what you can never judge 
when you're watching on television rather than at ringside mm. is you can never understand, you know, how, how concussive some of the punches are relative to others. And that's one of the, the um, criteria the judges are supposed to score on. Well, and by that, I mean mainly body shots, obviously not headshots yeah. that are going to knock the man down. That's a different thing. It's interesting that of the five fights you've picked, they all take place in America. Is the big fight night experience in Vegas very different to the big fight night experience at a, at a Wembley Stadium no, or a big venue in it Manchester? Was then, but the, one of the biggest things that has changed in, in, in my time and certainly Andy's time, I think, as well, is the globalization of this business. You know, when we started going back to the first days of Sky, America was it in world boxing terms. And America most definitely is not it now. The, the, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union, all those outstanding Eastern Bloc, as we used to call them, Eastern Bloc fighters. It's much easier now for the South Southeast Asian guys to get involved at world level. Travel is much easier. Manny Pacquiao, people like that. Great example. Um, so that's really moved it on again. It got much, much bigger in Central Europe. And happily for us now, we've got better stadiums. That's, a, as you know, Nathan, because you go to do the football, we've got much better stadiums. It's a much more pleasant experience now to go to a, a football stadium in Britain than it ever used to be in the old days. Um, and and um, those have made it much, much easier, I think, for, for, for the business to spread. And obviously, notwithstanding our current technical difficulties in, the, in this situation, um, the generally speaking, the communications are so much better. And to go back to the first example that in 89, it, we had truly that fight night in Las Vegas for Tyson against Bruno. We had one tiny truck with one operative. That was it. Wow. And you are hanging on, you know, praying that it's not going to fall off the air. And thank whatever powers you believe in that it didn't. We were, um, we were talking earlier on, Paul, um, as our, on our football show recording with three Irish players um, playing in championship and in Scottish premiership. And they were talking about going back training and potentially going back to football and social distancing and how that can work. And it's something that's going to be a huge topic, obviously, with the Premier League coming back. What's your sense from talking to people around BT as to where boxing will go over the next six months, year? Because obviously, well, social distancing is, is impossible in a boxing ring. And you'd imagine impossible to prepare for a fight by social distancing as well. Well, actually, I think Andy's much more qualified to comment on that than, than me. I, I, I'll say very briefly, and maybe uh, we'll get Andy's view, but for me, it's going to be the same set of difficulties that football have got, with slight nuanced differences, like everything else. But the industry is in trouble, like the football industry is in big trouble right now. Perhaps mm. for me, the big, the biggest trouble that football business has ever been in, ever. I think you do get and, that and, sense, Andy, that that boxing, like every other sport, like every other business, right now, is facing a huge crisis. Well, you heard Leo Varadkar; he was the last sport he mentioned on the <laughs> on the stages of, mm. uh, of 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 falling down lockdown. But there's been some talk of behind closed doors fights. The British Boxing Board of Control released their rules for bringing boxing back, and no more than five fights per card. All cornermen must wear PPE, and all fighters must be tested. And one of the problems which they have is that if they're bringing in, which a lot of fights are international fights now, somebody will have to isolate for two weeks. Um, coming into England or, or or Ireland, whatever country they're traveling from, so it's it is. It's a, there's a huge problem to overcome and huge difficulties to overcome. And um, 
I think there is a bit of a rush for it to come back. There was some talk of fights happening as early as July, but I'd be very surprised if it's not till the end of the year, maybe November, before we see boxing back again. That must be difficult, I'd imagine, for you to get your heads around at the moment in that Fury camp after like such an exhilarating night against Deontay Wilder and all the talk of June, July, huge showdowns, and now you may not get another fight this year the way you're talking. I think that would be one of the first... Whenever boxing does resume, that would be one of the first fights to be made. Mm. Whether or not he fights Wilder again, or whether there's been a lot of rumours and talk that he will fight Joshua, but... Um, he's training all the time, Tyson. He's he's still keeping fit, and that's what all the fighters are doing. Jason Quigley and Paddy Donovan the same. They're just like all fighters, staying staying fit by themselves because we can't train together, and um, nobody knows. And it's just just the uncertainty, really. Before that's really hard to deal with, I guess, for the fighters. How do you do a Zoom training session with Tyson Fury? <laughs> he does Instagram Live every morning where he does a workout in his living room, and you can join in and. Uh, it's fairly good. They're very successful, I think. We are tight in time. The other fights you picked were right at the start of 2000, the uh, Barrera-Morales uh, fight, the first of them, and then in the 2010s, Pacquiao-Marquez, which are both up there. I think most people, not just fights of their decades, but some of the greatest fights of all time, Paul. Yeah, um, I'll be... I, I, need, I know I'm sensing you need me to be rapid, so just <laughs> to go back to the 90s, the fighter of the decade, Oscar De La Hoya, to go up through all those weight divisions as he did, the golden boy. Unforgettable, unforgettable night against Julio Cesar Chavez. The handing on of the torch in the Mexican tradition in America. That was incredible as well. Uh, so I'm going for Barrera Morales, the first of the three for the fight of the 2000s, which came right at the start of the decade. When young people around me were watching Mayweather against Conor McGregor and getting excited and going, wow. I went, wow, because McGregor did well enough to stay in there and good luck to him. I had to actually sit people around me, younger people down and go, I want you to understand what greatness in boxing is all about. And I got, I called up on YouTube the first Morales Barrera fight. You could have actually picked any of the three, as Andy would know. But the, a year, the reason, another reason, Nathan, a year or so before Barrera came to London to meet a, kid, a tough kid from um, Ellesmere Port, Paul Lloyd. And the fight lasted one round, but within one minute of watching Barrera and the vicious surgical destruction of any pretense that Lloyd had in world class, that made you understand what being a world class boxer is all about. And I would say in general terms, that is a very chilling captivating experience when you see a world-class boxer going about his work there's a there's a there's a, a real thrill to that also i mentioned that one because as a as a trilogy which it became it was an era of great trilogies ward gatti mm. corrales castillo was another one um but the fighter of the of that period the decade as a whole heavyweight division going in decline has to be Kazagi, just on the record and i know there was some down nights for Joe, but you know, he beat Lacey, Kessler was a great night in Cardiff, in that amazing rugby stadium, that was amazing actually, that Kessler fight, one of the best in Britain ever, Frank Warren said it was his best night in boxing, and I picked it up with him last year, and I said, hang on, you said that tonight was a great, your greatest, I can't remember which fight it was, it was your greatest fight, 
And he, he, as Frank only would, he corrected me back straight away. And he said, yeah, when I was speaking about Calzaghi Kessler, I said it was my greatest night, which is actually true. That's what he did say. And he's right because it was so good. But um, that Morales-Barrera fight and the trilogy that, that they did not like each other. There was a lot of background between them as personalities and they gave it more than two men should be asked to do three times. And obviously two great boxers. Um, briefly to the period between 2010-19, because I know you're running short of time. Yes, I went for Pacquiao Marquez, the fourth fight, because that was the night that Manny lost to Marquez. Marquez, the last of the great Mexicans, Andy, really, perhaps in some ways. And Pacquiao mirrored De La Hoya's career in the sense that unbelievably he started out in the Philippines as a flyweight and he's ending up fighting maybe the guts of three stone heavier at world level. How do you do that? And in an amazingly long career. Mm. Um, and to, Marquez was one of the great triers, Andy, wasn't he? He has to be given credit for that. Yeah, well, he, he's unfortunate that he never, he came at the end of Brera and Morales. And though he mixed with Brera once, I think, and Morales, he never really got to mix it with them in their prime. Um, and he had, you know, he had a draw with Pacquiao the first fight, then two losses. They were, they were, they were debatable, those fights. You know, they could have went either way. And then the way he come back in the last fight and just completely stunned him with that KO and, and shocked everybody. Um, yeah. And really finished, finished, finished that series of fights off, like... Paul, you were, you were right earlier when you said we could have been here all night. Uh, we've barely scratched the surface of what we wanted to talk about. We're going to have to wrap it up, unfortunately. We must get you on again. It'd be a pleasure because the one we have to talk about is the fight of the 2020 so well. far. It starred Andy Lee and it, it happened in Las Vegas at the end of February. Tyson Fury, second time against Deontay Wilder because just for a couple of reasons and then I'm gone. First reason, because it demonstrated that Tyson Fury, in all seriousness, can become a great fighter. And I use the word advisedly, a great fighter. And Aram has always thought that since he came back at the start of this comeback. That can happen on what we saw that night. And secondly, to bring it back to our special guest, Mr. Andy Lee, as I said at the start, it was fantastic to see Andy Lee in the middle of it, helping the handpicked trainer for that job, and it tied together with Hearns and Leonard, that we spoke about at the start of this. Tommy Hearns was one of the special guests. The magnetic personality, Bob Arum, said he's my all-time favorite guy I ever worked with. And to see Andy instill, and I know what Andy did, he got inside Fury's head and they tapped into the, all that tactical system of the cronk how to take on, don't deny it, Andy, you put it together. Mm. Tommy Hearns was there to oversee it. There was a kind of poetic justice to the whole thing, and it was fantastic. Well done to you, Andy. Andy, you, well done. Uh, Paul Dempsey, you should know better than anybody the value of out times and how angry producers get when we go over them. It's been uh, brilliant to have you. We'll definitely talk to you again soon. League right, of yeah. Ireland legend Paul Dempsey, you, oh, you, yeah. you've done all right since then. Uh, brilliant to talk to you. Andy Lee, as always, mind yourselves, lads. Thank yeah. you very much, Nathan. Good luck to everybody. Stay well, everybody, please. The OTB Podcast Network.